Well, good morning, Capital friends and family. Uh, good morning, Matt and Molly. I saw you guys when I was waiting over there in the wings. Just wanted to say hi. That's all. <laughs> so I'm excited that you're here uh, this morning. All of you, not just Matt and Molly. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Capital, And I'm super excited today because I finally get to deliver on a promise that I've been making you for the four years that I've been on staff at Capital. Today is the day where we are going to experience the story of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, as it is revealed in the book of Leviticus. That's the appropriate response, by the way. And by the way, thank you so much for responding that way. It validates the way that God has wired me. And I mean that. Thank you, all of you. Now look, if you've never read the Bible, in some ways you're kind of in luck because Leviticus doesn't mean anything to you. But let's just be clear, for some of us who have been journeying with Jesus for a while, Leviticus uh, can sometimes seem irrelevant at best or overwhelming at worst. And I'll be honest with you from the get-go, Leviticus is overwhelming. But I'm telling you, years of devoting and my time and studying this book has shown me that it's not the kind of overwhelming that should create fear. It's the over, it's overwhelming because the book of Leviticus reveals the overwhelming, never ending, and I will say it and go on record, the reckless love of God that we just finished singing about. But before we begin, let's invite God to help us grasp the love that he pours out in the pages of Leviticus. Holy Spirit, we beg you to come. Open our minds and open our hearts to experience the love of God that seems in a spot that seems like the most unlikely of places that we're going to find you. As always, I humbly take a step back and I ask you, King Jesus, to steady my rowdy heart, to bring clarity to my mind and anoint my stammering lips of clay to be a good steward of your word. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, the one and only King that all of Leviticus points to. In your name we pray. Amen. So a few, uh, a few weeks ago now, uh, our daughter, Shree and I, uh, my wife, uh, our daughter, Eowyn, uh, started complaining that her eye was just a little itchy. And the area kind of like around her eye um, was a little red, but we assumed, well, she's been rubbing it, so that's probably what's going on. Well, later that day, she's complaining, Daddy, my eye is, is still itchy. Now, this time, there's this web of redness in what is normally the white of her eye. Not only that, now both eyes are, are producing more than just tears. <laughs> They're producing a visible gunk. And a quick Google search reveals uh, to Shri and I, oh no, we think Eowyn has pink eye. And Dr. Google tells us that this patient is contagious for up to 24 hours after the eye gunk stops secreting from her ocular cavities. And as if an invisible force was moving through our home, Sheree and I simultaneously took a step back and away from our daughter. And in that moment, with all the empathy inside of me, I looked at my little girl and I said, sweetheart, you are unclean. You gotta go. (laughs) 
And she laughed just like you guys. So it's cool. It's cool. And we start to explain to our little girl that's given us a weird look. We start to explain her to her what's going on with her eye and that this means she has to keep her distance from us. Now, Lewis, our son, and Eowyn, they love to share a room. Um, so she's immediately sad because this means she has to sleep alone. And that night we had plans one, uh, to get together with all of her uncles, but now Eowyn can't go see her uncles. Instead, she's confined to a singular couch in a singular room of our house all alone. Oh, it gets worse. <laughs> because pink eye means that Eowyn cannot kiss and hug mommy and daddy because she's contagious. Now, that was Saturday. On Monday, we go to the doctor and we discover an ulcer has formed in her eye because this is not just pink eye like we thought. It's an exacerbated eye gunk disease that I can't pronounce. It starts with a P as in pterodactyl or psychiatry, one of those kinds of things. So over the next week and a half, we keep our distance, uh, Sheree and I and Lewis, uh, and, and the two, and we, we take turns only getting close enough to administer eye drops when necessary. And this whole time, Eowyn is sad because she misses sleeping next to her brother. She misses being able to play with her friends. And most heartbreaking of all, every night as we banish her to her lonely bedroom, she says, I, I, I miss hugging and kissing you, daddy. Now, thankfully, after a week and a half of isolation and medication, Eowyn was in the clear. She's now back at school. Thank the Lord. She will be back in church today. Uh, she was here last week. Um, she is back to sleeping in the same room with her brother. And most importantly of all, she's back to hugging and kissing daddy. Now, because of Eowyn's condition, she was banished from participating in her normal life. But that separation was only ever meant to be temporary. See, we had a plan in place to help bring Awen back into life with us and, re and, and back into life with the rest of the world around her. And here's the thing. I don't think that any of you were worried about how this story was going to end. As I was telling you the story, I didn't feel like any of you were judging us for the fact that we told Awen, girlfriend, you're sick. And I don't think that you were judging us because we continually had to tell Eowyn, you got to keep your distance. And you certainly didn't judge me for going to a doctor. And you didn't judge me for following a doctor's very rigid orders for how to deal with her condition. See, you weren't judging me. Why? Well, I know this isn't true for everyone in the room, but I've been around here long enough that for the majority of you, the reason you weren't judging me is because you know me. And you know my character. And you know that every page uh, or every stage of this story, love drove my actions. If I were to have written this story in a book, you would have flipped through and you would have known that regardless of where you are in this story, my love for Eowyn is written on every page. See, the, the book of Leviticus is one part of the story of how a loving God dealt with the physical and more importantly, the spiritual sickness of his people, who, by the way, he often calls his children. It's the story of a perfect and holy God who looks at his imperfect and holy people and says, this is only temporary. I have a plan to bring you back into life with me. And as we step into this strange story this morning, here's what you're going to see. His love is on every page. 
His love is on every page. Now, maybe you belong to that crew of people that I talked about at the very beginning and you've read Leviticus and right now you're thinking, bro, how are you going to look me in the eyes and tell me that this is a story? I've read the book. It's a bunch of rituals and regulations. Well, before we explore a specific passage, I want to show you how God's love is on every page of the story of Leviticus as a whole. And to do that, I'm going to use these pages. See, the first thing that we have to remember is that the Bible is not a, a random collection of random stories from Israel's history. The Bible is a single, unified story from cover to cover. And we don't have time to tell the whole story today, which bums me out because you know that I love the, uh, the, the book of Genesis. But today we're just going to start in the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus, uh, as, a, as a little bit of a review, the book of Exodus is the story uh, of God. And, he, and, and, and essentially he, he raises up this guy named Moses. So we've, we've, got, we've got Moses who's just kind of hanging out here and we have to give him some hands because Moses is a shepherd. And so he's got to have a staff. And because he's in the Bible... He's got to have a robe on. Uh, oh, and because he's, he's a prophet, he's got to have a sweet beard. All right, so it, Exodus is the story of God uh, liberating his people from Egypt. And then once he gets them out of Egypt, he carries them into the wilderness. And then God says, Moses, I've got a plan. And my plan is, to, is for me to dwell with and among my people. So the latter part of the book of Exodus is the story of God laying out the plans for this, this, this facility called the tabernacle. Now, Bible quiz. Anybody know the other name for the tabernacle? Holy of Holies. Anything else? It's okay. I'm going to tell you. It's also called the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting. Now, it's God's house. And so even though we're in the wilderness, we're going to give him the patch of real estate that has some bushes because God likes some good landscaping. Uh, and because God is spirit, um, he wants his people to know that he's there. So the Bible says that he comes in the form of a cloud. And I realize as I draw this cloud that my cloud looks a lot like my bushes. Hey, I'm a Bible teacher. I'm not an artist. So give me some grace. So God descends in this cloud and his glory is radiating all around and out of, uh, out of the tabernacle. But there's still a problem. There's a problem because God is holy and his space is holy. But his people are not holy. And, and, and therefore, the book of Exodus ends on this roller coaster. Exodus 40, 30, 40, verses 34 and 35. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, which is awesome. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle even better. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So we have God dwelling in his space and humanity dwelling in this space that's near him. But there's a little bit of a disconnect at this point of the story, which means our boy Moses, sad face, sad face. Man, you have empathy for a stick character. You are some solid people. Now here's the thing. God has this place called the tent of meeting. And if it's the tent of meeting, but God can't meet with his people, then that's the dumbest name that you could ever come up with for this place. But here's the good news. That's not the end of the story. That's just the final verses of the book of Exodus. You flip the page and we come to our book for today, Leviticus. And Leviticus starts off like this. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So we still got our boy Moses, still chilling, still holding on to his staff, still rocking his robe. Still got his cool beard, and now we've got the tabernacle, and it's here. 
and God's glory is still there. And now what's, what's even better than before is not only is God among his people, not only is his glory there, but now God is speaking to his people from the tent. God is there. That's good. God is speaking to his people. That is even better. But we still have a problem because we still have this disconnect between God and his people. Because it's one thing to hear the voice of the one you love. It's a whole other thing to hold that person close. But here's the thing. That's just Leviticus 1.1. You flip all the way through to our very next book in the story, the book of Numbers, which by the way is a very unfortunate name. I don't know why we gave it the book of Numbers. There's only two sets of numbers in the whole book. In Hebrew, it's, uh, it's Bamid Bar, which means in the wilderness. Yeah, exactly. Wouldn't you, who doesn't want to read a book called In the Wilderness? Numbers? Come on, we, we, we'll write a letter. Anyway, back to our story. But he, and, and here's the good news. Here's how the book of Numbers begins. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. So now we have our boy Moses who is still leading God's people and he still has his sweet beard, but now he is inside God's presence. God's glory is radiating all out and all around and in Moses, which means now he goes from sad face. That's a happy face. Again, I'm not an artist. And here's the thing is, how do we go from God speaking to his people from the tent of meeting to God speaking to his people in the tent of meeting. My friends, welcome to the story of Leviticus. See, this is our narrative arc. We start in this place, which is not so, not so good, and we end in this place that is the ultimate good. See, this is a story that, while strange and foreign to us, screams to every Israelite, his love is on every page of this weird and wonderful book. And now you may have been told that God is holy, which is true. And you may have been told that we are not holy. People are not inherently holy. Well, after Genesis, that's also true. But, but somebody may have taken it a step further and said, so therefore humanity cannot exist with a holy God because, because we're unholy people and a holy God cannot live with unholy people. But I would submit to you, hold on, wait a minute. See, this statement is only kind of half right. Because do I really believe that my unholiness is greater than God's holiness? Do I really believe that my mistakes are stronger than God's love? Do you really believe that your sin and shame is stronger than God's power to restore you to an abundant life? If you do, I would submit you don't really know the God of the Bible. Now, 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 now maybe you do know the God of the Bible, but something happened that's made you think you've gone too far. And now you're too sinful, you're too broken, you're too unholy, you're too unclean, and he, that he's removed you from his presence. And at best, he'll speak to you, 
but he'll never bring you in and he'll definitely never use you. Well, maybe you think, well, I don't know what to think. Well, hopefully by the time we're done today, you'll know exactly what to think. Because this morning, I want to introduce you to the God of Leviticus, whose love is on every page. And you're going to hear me say that phrase over and over today. And I'm going to say it with a lot of excitement because it really excites me. And I want you to know that this is not some abstract piece of true theology. It is a truth that can transform your life. And here's why. The more you see his love on every page, the more you will see his love every day. See, why are people like me uh, and Troy and anybody else who stands up here, why do, are we always telling you disciples of Jesus must read God's word daily? It, it's so that you'll know his character. You trust in me with that story of Eowyn because you know me. You can trust him with the story of your life if you know him. See, when you see his compassion, his grace, his slowness to anger and his abounding love in his word, It'll transform your perspective to see his love in your world. In in seminary or, or Bible school, they call this practical theology. What could be more practical than developing eyes to see the love of God in your everyday life? I'm telling you, the more you learn to see his love on every page, the more you will see his love every single day. So let's look at his love in one spot in Leviticus. Leviticus 14. If you have your Bibles or if you have it in your app, you'll see that the title of this, of this chapter is Defiling Skin Diseases. <laughs> Hang with me. It begins like this. The Lord said to Moses, these are the regulations for any diseased person at the time of their ceremonial cleansing when they are brought to the priest. The priest is to go outside the camp and examine them. Okay, a few things you need to know. First, God gives instructions for how to handle physically diseased people, but there is always a spiritual component to these laws as well. And you have to remember that because when you're reading these laws, it seems like they have nothing to do with you. No, there is always a spiritual principle underlining it. So yes, these regulations are about dealing with your skin, but they are also about dealing with your soul. Hold on to that. And next, notice that the person does not come into the camp. The priest goes outside the camp. The Old Testament uses the term leprosy uh, to refer to all kinds of skin diseases. And when somebody has leprosy, they are banished to life outside the camp, which means they exist outside the community. And worst of all, outside once again of the tent of meeting. They must grow their hair long and shaggy. They must wear tattered clothing. They must walk around and shout, unclean, unclean, so that nobody else bumps into them and becomes temporarily unclean as well. See, this isn't an inconvenient cold that you just power through. This means the death of your status in your community. It means the death of your career, the death of your marriage, the death of your relationships with family and friends. And this is why leprosy in the ancient world was considered the exact same thing as being dead. So to be cured and cleansed of leprosy was considered to be equal to being resurrected from the dead. And because every Israelite knows only God has the power to raise the dead, being cleansed of leprosy means that the holy God has raised you from death 
back to life and has restored you to your holy status. And don't miss this. The very fact that God spells out what to do when someone is cleansed tells us that God has every intention to resurrect and restore. I'm telling you, we're only two verses in, but his love is on every page. His, the default position of his love is to restore you to your community, to your career. It's to restore your marriage, your friendships, the calling that he placed on your life that you think that you lost. It's to restore whatever it is that you lost when your camp banished you for whatever reason. So God tells the priest, go get the process started of bringing that insider back inside of my presence. Verses three and four continue. If they have been healed of their defiling skin disease, the priest shall order that two clean birds and some cedar wood, scarlet yarn and hyssop be brought for the person to be cleansed. Now the priest simply confirms that the person has been cleansed. They are not a doctor. They're much more like a health inspector. But according to the list that we just read, they're kind of a weird health inspector. They don't just give you a passing score and go, great, get on your way. He says, uh, go grab two live clean birds, some sticks, some fabric, and a couple of branches. And if we're being honest, this is the point where a lot of us pull that lever on the bus and go, hey, Mr. Leviticus bus driver, I'd like to get off now. We ask, oh, why the rituals? Why the weirdness? Why can't God just say, you're good to go? This all seems so pointless. Well, you want to know what else is pointless? Weddings. Weddings are pointless. For 50 bucks, you can get a sheet of paper and then go in and a justice of the peace can go, married, enjoy the tax benefit. Instead, we spend lots and lots of months and lots and lots of money on these unnecessary rituals. Uh, we arbitrarily line up our friends on either side of us, which makes all the other friends out here going, hey, how come we didn't make the cut? <laughs> then somebody walks a bride down the aisle and gives her away as if her life is not her own. Then we exchange vows that no one asked us to make and we give each other rings that have no magical power to bond us together. And then there's usually this logistical nightmare of a unity candle or a unity lock or a unity something that does absolutely nothing to actually unify people. And to top it all off, we put our mouths on each other. We call it a kiss. And somehow this specific kiss uh, seals the deal. Even even though most people have kissed numbers of times before that moment, but this one's a magical moment. See, it's all nonsense. It's all pointless. <laughs> Except it's not. And you make sure to tell my wife I said that. <laughs> See, it's not pointless. Because you know as well as I do, every one of those symbols that are those those activities that I just described is full and rich and overflowing with symbolic meaning. meaning. Uh, those people that stand beside, beside you are the ones that have stood beside you through thick and thin throughout that relationship and you are calling on them. You will stand beside me as my brother and sister through the thickest and thinnest parts of my marriage. The rings remind you of the never-ending commitment of your love to one another. That unity ceremony signifies the two becoming one. See, just like the symbols in our weddings... Every item, 
and every ritual in Leviticus overflows and is bursting at the seams with significant meaning. Here, we we start with two live, clean birds. And in the Bible, sometimes birds represent God. Like in Genesis 1, verse 2, when the spirit of the Lord uh, hovered and fluttered over the creation waters. Or in Exodus 19, 4, when God reminds Israel, I carried you on eagle's wings, by the way, to myself when I brought you out of Egypt. See, but also birds uh, can represent people. If you were here last week, Kelly Preston talked to us from Isaiah 40, specifically in verse 31, where people are poetically shown as birds soaring on eagles' wings. And we don't have time to talk about covenant ceremonies where where birds represent people throughout the Bible. But you get it. You have two birds, two parties that they can represent. I'm going to ask you to also hold on to that. Next is the cedar wood. In the ancient world, cedar wood symbolized majesty beauty, social value, social standing, social worth. See, someone who was once, or uh, someone who once carried unclean disease is told by God, how about you carry along with yourself symbols of majesty, beauty, and worth? And then there's the scarlet yarn. These are the exact same materials that are used to create the covering of the tent of meeting. The one who was once called unholy is now bringing to God the very materials used to create his holy presence. And finally, the hyssop. Oh, buddy, the hyssop. See, Israelites used hyssop to smear blood on the door frames of their homes during Passover. So hyssop represents protection of God over a person. And it represents the distinct identity as an Israelite, a.k.a. you are a child of God. See, the one who had lived in the shadow of the angel of death for who knows how long is told, how about you step back into new life with a symbol of God's protection and your identity as his child. You're starting to feel it, aren't you? His love on every single page. But get ready, because God's about to take this to a whole other level. We continue. Then the priest shall order that one of the birds be killed over fresh water in a clay pot. He is to then take the live bird and dip it together with the cedar wood, the scarlet, and the hyssop into the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Now, twice in this verse, we see this phrase, fresh water. In Hebrew, it's the phrase, mayim chayim. So think, lachayim, to life. This is life water. This is living water. Hmm, who do I know later on in the story of the Bible who talks about coming to him to receive living water? Yeah, your Jesus radar is going off and it should. See, one bird sacrifices its life. Hmm. And its blood is mixed with living water. And don't forget the other three symbols that it is connected to and it's dipped into the water at the same time. This bird, this live bird is now soaked in living water covered by the blood of an innocent victim and is now taking on the qualities of majesty, beauty, and worth along with the holiness of God, the protection of God, and the identity of child of God. 
and this part of the ritual, and this is where we're going to stop because there are so many other parts of this ritual I wish we had time to get into. But the ritual concludes, seven times he, meaning the priest, shall sprinkle with blood the one to be cleansed of the defiling disease and then pronounce them clean. After that, he is to release the live bird into the open field. And I know when we think of someone flicking blood on us seven times, we think, gross. <laughs> and that is gross. But if you started at Leviticus 1.1 and you've been tracking, at this moment you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute. I remember chapter four. I remember something else that was sprinkled with blood seven times. The tent of meeting. See, the tent of meeting was, was sprinkled with blood to signify this is a holy place, a place where people can meet with a holy God. See, sprinkling the person seven times is God's way of connecting the tent of his dwelling with the tent of a person's body. See, in the New Testament, when the apostle Paul starts talking about your body is a temple, it's a tabernacle, he's calling on Leviticus. See, this is God's way of saying you, who others called unclean and unholy, you, who no one else would touch, you, who everyone else kicked out, you, who was dead to the world, you, I reached out and touched, you, I brought back inside because you are pure, you are holy, you are a place where my presence can dwell, you are a place where other people will now see my love and hear of my love and experience the truth that I am the God who touches the untouchable and I am the God who inhabits what everyone else says is uninhabitable. I am the holy God who transforms unholy people into living, breathing tents of testimony. Testimonies to the truth that one detail from your story is no match for my overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love. And just as my love is written on the pages of what many reverently refer to as a holy Bible, Oh, now I have made your body holy so that I can write my love on every page of your holy story. See this, my friends, this is the God of Leviticus. This is the God of the Old Testament. This is the God who was and is and is still inviting you to come. Come and see my love, God says, on every page so that you can learn to experience my love every day. And see, too many people in our world believe the false narrative that the God of the Old Testament was moody at best, but angry at worst, and that he's only about rituals and laws. And the Jesus of the New Testament, he's the one that's all about love. And look, I completely agree with the truth of the first statement, but Leviticus absolutely refutes the lie of the first one. And it's not just people today that misunderstand God's character. There were folks in Jesus's day that didn't understand his character either. See, there's this story at the end of Mark chapter one that I would be willing to bet a lot of you in this room, you've heard it before. But now that you understand Leviticus 14, I bet it's gonna seem brand new all over again. Mark 140 starts like this. A man with leprosy came to him. Oh, we're turning the world upside down. Let me rephrase that. Jesus is turning the world upside down. And he begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Yeah, let Leviticus 14 flood your brain, 
flood your heart and clue you into the depth of what's happening here. See, this leper, he broke protocol by coming into the city to find Jesus. Why? Oh, he must have heard Jesus say something or he must have seen Jesus do something that proved this ain't no holy health inspector. He must have seen Jesus as somehow connected and on par with God because he saw Jesus as someone who could heal his skin and he could heal his soul, a soul wrecked by a lifetime of living as an outsider. See, he didn't doubt that Jesus could resurrect and restore his life. He questioned if Jesus would. He questioned if Jesus was willing, which means this man misunderstood the character and the love of God. Apparently, somewhere along the road, this man was told, oh yes, there is a God. But why would he care about? Why would he heal? Why would he love an unclean, unholy, messed up, broken, dirty person like you? Which is why Mark 141 tells us Jesus was indignant. See, Jesus was not indignant because this man broke protocol and invaded his personal space. Jesus was indignant because this man was led to believe that God didn't care about his personal space and his personal struggle. Jesus was indignant because the story of the Bible is the story that reveals God shouting on every page, I love you. And look, it's going to look different in different cultures and at different times throughout history. And it's going to look different in different people's lives because my love is personal, which means I have to show my love in ways that you personally will understand. So Jesus corrects this man's misunderstanding of his love and character with a touch. He reached out his hand and touched the man. Oh, I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Now look, Jesus could have taken a step back and he could have stayed safe and Jesus could have spoken a word from a distance and that man could have been healed because this is the same Jesus that spoke a word and calmed the storm. But that's not our Jesus. See, Jesus, the holy God in the flesh, John 1, 14, he tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is, the, this is the holy God in the flesh that put his hands on a man who had not felt the touch of another human being in literally only God knows how long. See, Jesus touched him. Then he cleansed him. And it's worth repeating. If you think that a holy God cannot live among unholy people, then you have never met the God of Leviticus and you have yet to meet the Jesus of Nazareth. You've never met the Jesus who embraces the dirty and one chapter later in the gospel of Mark calls some outcasts to be his disciples. And 2,000 years later, I am a tent of meeting that says he still calls unholy outcasts to be his disciples. See, Jesus is the love of God, of the God of Leviticus in human form. And that's why once he cleanses the man, we are told he sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Because you know Leviticus 14, you know that Jesus is sending this man to be reinstated back 
back into his community, back into his life, and back into a life of understanding that, that, that his God sees him as beautiful, majestic, and worthy of love. He's sending this man to be reinstated as a tent of meeting where others can meet or be reintroduced to God. This man is now the one who will, will correct the misunderstandings about the love and character of God by saying, let me tell you a story. It's the story of a man who heals the sick and cleanses the dirty and raises the dead to life. It's the story of a man who isn't afraid to put his hands on me and give me back my dignity. It's the story of a man who, yes, he healed my skin, but more importantly, he healed my soul because he restored my faith that God is willing to step into the life of an outsider. And he has made me a testimony that Emmanuel has come and that God is with us. See, Jesus told this man to go and show himself to the priest to do all that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And trust me, the priests would have had Leviticus memorized. So when they saw a leper cleansed, healed by a man in their own town, perhaps at that moment, holding all of those symbols in their hands, perhaps that would have been the moment that they realized the hope of God the promised king had finally come and they would have recognized him because see, because they had seen his love on every page of Leviticus and because they held his love in their hands, they would have recognized his love in their everyday life. But we don't know if the priest ever got that chance. Verse 45 says, instead he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. See, we don't know if this instead uh, here only means instead of not telling anyone that he was cleansed, or if it means instead of not telling one and instead of going to the priests, this man just started talking freely. But here's what we do know. Jesus did not miss the chance to embody Leviticus 14. Remember those two birds? One lost his life so that the other could have a new and better life of freedom. See, Jesus traded places with this man. This man now moved through the town and talked freely, but Jesus could no longer enter the town. Now this man has been brought back in while Jesus has been banished outside to lonely places. Jesus gave up his freedom of his life so that this man could have his life back. And verse 45 concludes, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. People from every part of the region, from every walk of life, with every kind of baggage and brokenness, with every kind of false narrative about their worth, their beauty, and their status in the eyes of God. Jesus welcomed them because he came to cleanse and to restore and invite everyone everywhere into new life in him. See the opening pages of Mark. In the opening pages of Mark, Jesus trades places with a leper, a man in need of physical healing by being banished to life outside in lonely places. In the final pages of Mark, Jesus trades places with all of humanity, people in need of soul healing when he's beaten and banished to a cross outside the city. 
My friends, the story of Mark 15 is the same story as Mark 1, which is the same story of Leviticus 14. And they're all the story of our lives. On every one of these pages, God says, I have made a way for you to go from death to life. On every page, I offer you hope and healing and restoration for your body and for your soul. On every page, God says, I'm inviting you to see and experience my love so that you will see my love more clearly in your everyday life, in your story. So my friends, I wanna ask you a question. What's your story? What has happened to you? Or what have you done that has come to define you? See, we've been talking this morning about people who are physical lepers, but maybe you've done some things that have caused you to be labeled a social leper. Maybe you said the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong time within your camp. And now nobody will talk to you and you are an outsider. Well, maybe you're still on the inside, but you're on the inside track at your firm or at your job. And and there's somebody else that's in the running for that promotion. And you're like, ah, this isn't really me. But man, if I just do this one thing, it'll help me get ahead and I'll never do it again. But now you live with this regret because you are a cheater. Maybe you didn't cheat at work, but maybe you cheated on your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. Maybe you're an adulterer. Maybe it's not as extreme as all that. Maybe, hmm, maybe you just walk around and you just feel angry all the time. And it's clouding your vision and it's spilling out onto the people around you. Maybe, God forbid, something once upon a time happened to you. And you went and told somebody, but oh, it turns out you told the wrong person and they told everybody else. And now the people around you, you think that when they look at you, all they see is someone who's dirty. And look, we could go chair for chair and we could fill up who knows how many whiteboards with all of this kind of stuff. But can I tell you the truth about all this? The truth is, all of this is a lie. Because the truth of the gospel of Mark and the truth of the gospel of Leviticus and the truth of the gospel of the entire Bible is that this is not what defines you. This is who defines you. Jesus. See, all of these things, he's already taken care of them. Because remember, he's the innocent victim whose blood covered you and whose blood has been sprinkled on you. And now you are not dirty. You are clean and you are holy in his eyes. See, and and whatever may come in your life, his living water has washed you pure and, and, and invigorates your soul. See, if you're still living with any of these things, and here's the truth, that may have happened to you or maybe you did do one of those things, but what you have done does not define who you are. Bible says Jesus defines who you are. 
which means he comes along and says, see, I dealt with this. So I'm going to take this and I'm going to banish it outside in lonely places where it belongs. And I'm going to bring you back in and look, see, I've set the slate clean and I'm ready to write a new story. And here's all you need to know about your story now. Yours is a story of love. That is who defines you. And my friends, a long time ago, a long time ago, we let go of the symbols found in Leviticus 14 and we traded them for these symbols. In just these two symbols, we get the entire story and the entire story has made it clear. Hey, in case you missed it, it's a story of my love for you. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And I want to invite you as you stand to take whatever you think it is that defines you, whatever you think is keeping you from the love of Jesus or life in Jesus or being used by Jesus to proclaim the love of Jesus to the world through the pages of your story. I want you to take whatever that is and I want you to banish it outside in lonely places because he's already given you a new hope. And I want to invite you to receive the truth, but more importantly, to live in the truth that you have received his life and his love. And this is what now defines you. First Corinthians 11 says, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Family, this morning, will you receive the bread of his broken body? In the same way, when when the supper was over, he took the cup saying, this cup, oh, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death and your new life until he comes. Will you receive the symbols of his blood and will you accept his invitation into a new covenant this morning? Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your love that rewrites our story. We thank you for your love that absorbed everything as you are that sacrificial bird who traded places with us. We thank you that because of your life and your sacrifice, we have new life, a life of freedom, a life of freedom. I pray for anyone in this room, Lord, that is struggling because they know you, but they know you, they know you, but they're struggling to live in the truth of you. Holy Spirit, come and drive the lies outside to lonely places and let them live a new life. Father, if there's anyone here who has never accepted your invitation into life in Christ, I pray that right now in this moment, they would receive the bread and they would receive the cup and they would receive the invitation into a new story defined by your love. In your incredible name we pray, amen. Okay, you can have a seat. We always do homework around here and as nerdy as we got today, you better believe I'm gonna give you some homework, but it's gonna be simple. It's gonna be simple and it all revolves around one thing, but I'm gonna flesh it out in two ways. And here's the first, look for his love. Look for his love in the pages of your life. Before you lay your head on your pillow tonight, I want you just to, to take some time 
think back through your story up to this point and find those moments where you know that his love did something incredible to change your life. Thank him for that and invite him to open your eyes to recognize his love in, your, in, in the days to come. And, 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 and here, here, here's my tip for how you can learn to do that. Look for his love in the pages of scripture. Look for his compassion, grace, slowness to anger and his abounding love. Because the more you recognize his, his love on every page, the more you will recognize his love every day. And finally, don't be afraid of Leviticus. Now look, I'm not delusional. I'm pretty sure none of you are gonna go and start a Leviticus small group. <clears throat> if you do, please invite me. I wanna come and party with you. But I'm serious. Those places, those places that you kind of stay away from, those places that seem like, oh, what does this have to do with me? Well, take another look and read them, remembering that it's all one unified story that it culminates in Jesus. And ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes so that you can see his love in unlikely places. We had two one things today. So they're not technically a one thing, but both of these graphics are gonna be available uh, later this week. And then I wanna give you a verse that we didn't talk about. Um, By the way, if you wanna read somebody who was really nerdy about the Bible, read Psalm 119. You'll read this per, the, the, these words and you'll be like, whoa, this guy loves the law. I think we're reading two different books. <laughs> but maybe you could learn to read it like this person. And Psalm 119, 18 just simply says, open, the, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. Let that be your prayer every time you crack your Bible this week. Please stand with me. My friends, I'm so glad you're here. And this is my simple benediction for you and my simple prayer over you this week. May God open your eyes so that you may see his wonderful love on every page of his word so that you may see his love every day in your own life. Grace and peace.